Uh, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> it's a privilege to stand before you here today on this kind of overcast Sabbath day. Um, but it is good to be alive in good health and strength and uh, to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, we're coming aside from a world of work and for many of us a world of worry. And as we come to worship the Lord on the Sabbath, we're asking to step into a world of wonder, to come into the presence of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and to receive the assurance once again that he is, he is coming again. I'd like to bring you greetings from my wife and my two kids, and um, it's, uh, they're down in Berrien Springs right now. And um, I think I've preached here once before about five or six years ago, uh, but it's a privilege to stand before you here today. We're going to be talking today, uh, the sermon is entitled COVID-19 and the End Time Persecution, uh, which uh, is, is a topic I believe is timely. And as we've gone through this COVID crisis, um, it's forcing us to ask some very hard questions, some existential questions, not just uh, how is the economy doing, but who am I, where have I come from, and where am I going, and do I know where I'm going? And so we're going to be discussing today um, what the COVID-19 is telling us about the final persecution that we read about in Revelation 13 of God's people. I invite you to bow your heads with me and we'll open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, Lord, we live in a world where truth is no longer in the public square, where we no longer know what to believe. And so, Father, we would hear your voice speak to our hearts today. Father, still the voices of this world, may they be left outside the walls of this sanctuary. And I pray that your spirit will speak through me and to each one of us today. I thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So we're going to be looking today at what the, the COVID persecution, COVID is revealing about the end time persecution of God's people. Oh, there we are. Okay, this thing is working. Um, uh, working with Adventist Frontier Missions, we come into contact with people who are being persecuted for their faith. Persecution is the norm in the world, it is not the exception. We in America have freedoms today, um, at least we, we theoretically have some freedoms, but the reality is, is that we need to learn lessons as the free church from the persecuted church. And um, we divide the world into you know, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, and so forth, but another way of looking at the world is to look at the free church and the persecuted church. And at these two websites up there, persecution.com is from Voice of the Martyrs. That was established by um, Pastor Richard uh, Wurmbrandt after he escaped from um, Ceausescu's persecution. And Open Doors USA, they track the persecution of Christians around the world. It matters not whether they are Orthodox or Protestant or Catholic, but persecution is a very real reality. And it's happening even as we sit here today. And we won't go through stories today, but the persecution is very real. It is in human nature to persecute minorities of various kinds if they don't agree with the dominant narrative. And so um, one day those tendencies will arrive on our shores here in the United States. Well, let's set some historical context here, shall we? Uh, the Russian Empire uh, went from uh, west, of Russia, west of Moscow all the way across to the, uh, to the shores of Japan almost, uh, led by the Tsars, and the last 20 years of the Russian Empire under the Tsars, Russia was in a state of philosophical flux. 
Russia was torn apart by various ideological groups. There were the agrarians, there were the aristocrats, there were the workers, there were the Bolsheviks, there were the Mensheviks, there were the nobility, there were those who want to push for modernity in Russia, and there were those who clung to the old ways. After 20 years of philosophical flux, and you can read about this in, say, the writings of Dostoevsky, you, you get a glimpse of this philosophical chaos within the nation, there arose a strong regime known as the USSR. And with the USSR came the persecution of Christians, and millions of people died throughout the history of the Soviet Union. Um, the imposition of Marxism cost over 100 million lives in the 20th century. We see the same trend happen within Germany. In the 1920s, Germany was reeling from the impact of the Versailles Treaty, which was a national humiliation in the eyes of many. They were suffering with the collapse of the currency. There was very high unemployment. And on the streets of Germany, there were running battles between the Freikorps, between the, the, um, the, the uh, soldiers who come back from the Western Front, between the communists and the socialists. There were running battles on the streets. Germany was torn apart during the last years of the Weimar Republic. And it was replaced, out of that chaos, came a strongman. And that, of course, was Adolf Hitler in 1933. Societies that go through chaos tend to swing to a strong authoritarian leadership. We see the same possibly happening in America now. America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, a nation that uh, many love very dearly. But America is now experiencing a state of philosophical and ideological flux. Would you agree with me? We see it in our streets. We see on the streets battles between people from the hard left and from the hard right. We're seeing in America that, that the economy is being divided along political lines. You have a boycott or a boycott. If your company or if your church or if your business or if you personally take a stand on any issue, people will either buy from you or they will not do business with you. We're seeing that ideological decisions are affecting the impact of consumers in our nation. We're seeing in America today that we have special interest groups, activist judges, woke corporations and media factions all on various warpaths. And we are seeing the rejection of our Judeo-Christian heritage. We are seeing coercion take place economically. Uh, we are seeing employment purges. We have cancel culture for those who disagree with whatever dominant narrative is out there. We are seeing physical intimidation and street violence becoming all more, altogether more common. This is unthinkable maybe five years ago, but this is happening in front of our eyes. And the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed to us that the tools are in place for the persecution of God's end-time people. And we've also seen with the COVID-19, and this is a wake-up call for us as Adventists, is that we have normally thought that the Sunday laws and the oppression of God's people will take place through one of three mechanisms, either an act of Congress, a Supreme Court decision, or an executive order from the presidency. And what we've seen in America in the last five months is that the tools of persecution can be put in place with no, without an act of Congress, without an executive order, and without a Supreme Court ruling. So the traditional mechanisms we thought would take place, that have to take place before the persecution of God's people takes off, we see that you don't actually need those to happen, but the, the society can be closed down. So as we look at America today, and as you look back at our last five years since the COVID outbreak here in America, we have seen that constitutional rights and religious liberties have been revealed to be little more than, than, than really a mirage in many cases. Across America today, uh, despite the best intentions of legislatures and governors and mayors of all political stripes, 
as they battle this, this terrible pandemic, which is real, and people are dying from this pandemic. There's no question about that. But we see that with the lockdowns, we see the, the suspension of supposedly inalienable rights, such as those contained in the US Bill of Rights, for instance, our First Amendment rights. Perhaps inadvertently, this pandemic has revealed that all the ingredients are in place for the persecution of God's people, and that political leaders across the political spectrum are ready and willing to use them given an opportunity and given an excuse. So what are some of the ingredients that we see in the COVID-19 scenario that may apply uh, to Adventists at the end of time? Firstly, we see that tragically we have a corrupt national media on all sides of the equation from whom truth has departed. But the corrupt national media pushes a national agenda whereby our civil liberties, our constitutional rights, and our religious freedoms are indefinitely suspended during a state of emergency. And now, this doesn't happen in every state in the United States, but if you keep your eyes open, you'll realize that churches across America have been closed, they've been banned. And there was a very famous case just recently where a governor, he said churches can open to 25% capacity and casinos to 50% capacity. And so the entrepreneurial pastor promptly booked a room in a local casino and held the, had the whole church meeting there. Uh, the casino was, in fact, fined for that. I'm not sure why. But the point is that governors in America and local cities and in mayors have been attempting to close down religious liberty in America. We're familiar with the police going, I think it was in Missouri, to a church sitting in a drive-in theater in their cars with the windows up socially distanced from each other, and the police were saying, and this was caught on video, your rights are suspended, and that, that church was dispersed on that Sunday gathering. We also see in America that social media now, it, the giants are restricting and deplatforming any voices that question the dominant narrative. If you say something that does not meet the, the community guidelines of Facebook or YouTube or any other social media giant, you will be deplatformed. Your voice will be cut off in America today. We also see in America today that those who are, who are dissenters to the dominant narrative, you are demonized online and uh, in the media and in online mobs. And they are ascribed the worst possible motives by national and local leaders. We see in America today that during the COVID pandemic that gatherings for worship and evangelism are banned in the alleged interests of public safety. And deputies are sent by local mayors. They have been sent by local mayors at different locations in the last five months to fine and arrest those who've gathered for worship, even as I mentioned minutes before in drive-in services. We also see that in some states in America, hotlines have been established in which Americans have been encouraged to report on their neighbors for failing to comply with the dominant narrative. This is unthinkable even five months ago. My wife was raised in the Soviet Union. If you know anything about the Soviet Union, you know that during the time of Joseph Stalin, you could write an anonymous letter of denunciation to the KGB about X, Y, or Z individual. There was no trial. That end, there was a knock at the door at midnight, and that person was taken off, condemned as an enemy of the people, and sent to deeper Siberia. And because of the legal system in, in the Soviet Union, after when your 10 years were over, you could not come back to your family. You had to stay in a penal colony outside the walls of that prison. In America, we've seen hotlines being established where you can snitch on your neighbors if they don't comply with the dominant narrative. This is unthinkable in America. We've also seen, seen so-called track and trace apps. I don't have my phone with me. Uh, I have a teenage son. I wish I had a track and trace app for him. But um, we have these track and trace apps that have now been downloaded. And if you, if you use a Mac, uh, an iPhone, or a Droid, 
um, in the latest updates, they've got the enabling software for track and trace apps. You don't have it yet, the app on your phone, but the enabling software is already in place. And in Britain, the government is rolling out track and trace apps so that if you are, if you are diagnosed with COVID, they can look at your phone and see who was in close contact with you. Track and trace apps give the government unprecedented intrusion into your privacy. We also see that smart tools such as Siri and Alexa and Amazon's Echo Dot and Google's Nest Mini, they're used in millions of homes across America, and they're very convenient, I get that. But they do have the ability to record every word that you speak. And if you wonder, are they listening to you when you think I'm a paranoid nutcase up here this morning? I'm not paranoid, but I do know this. If I talk to my wife about two or three times tomorrow morning about, I'm thinking that we should get a new food processor. Within about 24 hours, in your social media feed, you will have adverts for food pressers showing up in your feed. And how does that happen? If the only person you've spoken about it to is your wife. And you don't do a Google search. All right, so we have these um, smart devices in our homes that are, have the ability to record every word you ever speak. We see that in the uh, coronavirus that the full force of the administrative state at a state level has been used to threaten the livelihoods of families. We've seen the threat of children being removed from their homes, the homes of business owners who refuse to comply with the, compliant, with the dominant narrative. This has been happening not in all the states, but it has happened in a number of states, that your children will be removed from you for failing to comply with the dominant narrative. We've seen in different states, the attorney generals have arbitrarily revoked business license and registrations, denying individuals their ability to buy, to sell, to bank, or to make a living. This has been happening even here in Michigan, um, we have had um, some businesses have had their licenses revoked for failing to comply with the dominant narrative. We also see that international travel has been brought to a shuddering halt at the stroke of a pen. And uh, in Adventist Frontier Missions, some of our missionaries are stuck overseas. They can't get home for their furloughs. And some people who are preparing to launch, they can't launch because there's no planes to where they're supposed to be going. It's all very well if your family lives in America, but what happens, my mother-in-law lives in Russia, which was, thankfully is a long way away, but in the crisis, we, I cannot get to see her and she cannot get to see me. Well, maybe it's a silver lining, you might say. But my parents, they live in England. And if my parents, they're in their 70s, my father was ill. He went to go to the hospital. If he were to die, I cannot get back for a funeral. And so families are separated and there is no knowledge of when you can be reunited with your loved ones. We also see that during the crisis, uh, when it came upon us in March, most U.S. colleges and churches were ordered shut, again in the interests of public safety. Now, thankfully, and by the grace of God, Andrews is now opening. We can gather here together like this, but uh, that is not the case across the United States. Some universities are open, some are closed. Some schools are open, some are closed. And uh, I, I used to walk by PMC in March and April, horrified that all that life would just come to a close. At the stroke of a pen, not by our own volition, our big churches are just standing empty. We also see that in the public sphere, truth has been declared dead, and in many cases, it is now declared to be hate speech, and it has been driven from the public square. This is what's been happening during the COVID-19 experience. It hasn't happened maliciously, I believe, as our governors have tried their level best to battle the pandemic, but our governors have discovered um, executive and almost authoritarian powers to rule by the stroke of a pen without any input from the legislatures. Effectively, here in Michigan now, we have a governor who rules by executive order and declares she can do it indefinitely as long as she declares there to be an emergency. 
and the legislature, that is our representatives, have no say in what happens in Michigan right now. So truth has been declared hate speech in much of America today. If you try and preach about biblical principles of, for instance, marriage or human sexuality, as I've experienced, you will receive a lot of feedback. And some of that feedback is not something you want to share with your children. So what happens when it comes to the end time persecution? We've read in our scripture reading, thank you, Sister Baumgarten, for reading for us. When that persecution comes our way, what we've learned is that it doesn't require Congress or the Supreme Court or the presidency to put this persecution, these tools of persecution in place. What we realize as we read Revelation is that we may face real persecution from the government without all of these normal mechanisms being in place, and all it requires is a political excuse to make it happen. That's all it requires, is a political excuse. So what may happen to Adventists? Based on what we've seen in COVID-19, COVID well, we're going to see that um, our civil and religious liberties will be revoked. We've discovered so far in COVID that your constitutional rights are hardly worth the paper they're written on. Our constitutional rights will be revoked. The First Amendment, the freedom to worship God or not to worship God, will effectively be rendered meaningless. It doesn't require an act of Congress. We're likely to see the closing of all our church buildings, our colleges, our conferences, our unions, our divisions, supporting ministries, all Adventist institutions may well be closed. We'll discover that evangelism will be declared to be hate speech. It is already happening in some parts of the world that are more secular. But the proclamation of the gospel, the call to repentance, is a repudiation of the doctrine of safe spaces on our college campuses. The doctrine of safe spaces on college campuses means that nothing can be allowed to, to question or cause some discomfort to your personal lived experience. And so we create safe spaces on our college campuses, and the call to repent is no longer welcome on many college campuses because that is a denial of your safe space. And so evangelism and preaching the everlasting gospel will eventually be declared to be hate speech because the call to repentance implies that your subjective lived experience is not valid. That's the implication. We will be defamed, deplatformed on social media, and canceled from public culture. This has not happened in America yet, but uh, I see that some, some members in this congregation here, I know some of you come from former Eastern Europe, and you know what it is like that Christians and Adventists were, were persecuted. They were locked away. The, closed, the churches were closed down. And sooner or later, it's going to come our way, and we will be deplatformed on social media and our voice taken away from us. Our ability to buy, sell, bank, and travel will be suspended, probably for all time, until Jesus comes again. We've seen it happening right now over COVID, and one day those tools can be turned on God's people, and we will discover that your IRA, your bank account, your credit card will be worthless in the final crisis. It will mean absolutely nothing. We may find that our savings, our IRAs, investment accounts will be frozen, never to be used again. We'll be unable to pay our mortgages or our rents, thus we'll be forced from our homes, and our possessions will be gone. Bit by bit, the world will take away the things that many of us hold very dear. We'll be demonized across the political spectrum and in all media, as Jesus himself told us, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, Mark 13 and verse 13. We also see that, or I anticipate, and this isn't a, a prophecy, uh, but this is based on what we see right now. If you are on the streets and you don't comply with the dominant narrative, what happened in Portland recently, you can be shot down in the streets. Or mobs will attack you. 
Uh, this isn't a political statement, this is a statement of fact. And uh, state bureaucrats, drunk on the powers of emergency di uh, directives, can make all kinds of rulings against you and you have no way of appealing those. Track and trace apps on our phones will trace our every movement and our smart devices will record every word that we ever utter. Our children may indeed be forcibly removed by child protective services to be placed within protective custody within the foster system. You say, well, that could never happen. I served for 12 years in the former Soviet Union. I met many devoted Adventists, babushkas, by then they were babushkas, grandmas, whose children were taken from them. They were forcibly divorced by the KGB precisely because they were Adventists. I met one lady who hadn't seen her children for 45 years. When the Soviet Union collapsed, she tracked them down to the city of Rostov-on-Don, and it was a glorious reunion to see her children again. Don't think that governments will not take the children of those who disagree with the government on religious grounds. It's happened throughout the Soviet Union, and one day it may happen in our shores. The only thing that remains is a political excuse for politicians to turn all these tools of oppression on God's faithful remnant. And if you're kind of depressed about this, well, yeah, I'm kind of depressed about it as well. But the good news is Jesus is coming again. And if you look at the statue of Daniel 2, we don't have time to look at it now, the very, when, when, when Daniel see, talks about the dream, we focus on the interpretation of the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and so forth. But the first thing that Daniel says about the text, he says, I saw this dream and this, this image in the dream, and the, the, the image was terrifying. We, miss, we, we kind of skirt over that little phrase. Daniel says that the image is terrifying, which means that all earthly powers from Daniel to the coming of Jesus, have a terrifying element to them. No matter what we may say about our nations, where we come from, earthly nations, when push comes to shove, have a terrifying element about them. So, how do we prepare for such persecution? Our scripture reading talked about this, the, the final persecution of God's people, those who will not receive the mark of the beast in their head, in their head or, in their, or in their hands. How do we prepare for this? And the challenge we have as Adventists is that when we talk about the final persecution, we tend to talk about timelines. We like to talk about, as I put it on the screen there, we tend to focus on the sequencing and the roadmap. When is the little time of trouble going to happen? When is the closing of probation going to happen? When is the sealing of the saints? When is the time of the end or the end of time? You know, we even have acronyms for these things. In theological books, we talk about the TOTE, the time of the end. And we talk about EOT, the end of time, and we differentiate between them based on, on, on certain aspects of Daniel and Revelation. And we love to sequence out what the final persecution is going to look like. And, uh, you know, I like going through with people um, Ellen White's book, uh, uh, End Time Events. It's a powerful little book, and there's a beautiful study guide with it. I encourage you to go through it. And uh, we love to analyze when is Jacob's time of trouble, what is Jacob's time of trouble, how do we know it's Jacob's time of trouble, and so forth. But these are the wrong questions, because it's going to come anyway. More important is, are we ready for it? There are two very commonly heard statements when it comes to persecution. The first is, ah, persecution will never happen here. And the second is, well, we never thought persecution would come here. You hear this in many parts of the world. Ah, don't be a naysayer. Persecution will never come to Berrien Springs. Oh, really? Well, one day we're going to be saying we never thought that persecution would ever come to our shores. How do we prepare for persecution? Well, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. 
He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in our affliction. Paul is talking from the perspective of the persecuted church, and he's talking to a church yet to experience persecution. That's the context here. Then he says, so that we, that is the persecuted church, may be able to console those who are any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. Paul is saying this, that the free church needs to learn lessons from the persecuted church. We don't just pray for those going through persecution. It's our spiritual responsibility to learn lessons about how do you go through persecution? How do we respond as individuals and as a church family to the reality of persecution? You see, intellectually, as Adventists, we know we're going to experience persecution. But spiritually, are we ready for it? And from a pastoral perspective, as a pastor, you want to know you've prepared your congregation and your family for when you are gone. Uh, we have an Adventist Frontier Missions. We work in a country in Southeast Asia. I won't say which country it is right now. Um, but uh, we have a local leader. She works for us, and she's a very gifted lady. And uh, that church, that, that country, has had significant and sustained persecution against Christians in general, and Adventists in particular. And back in the 70s, her father disappeared. He was a local pastor. He disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. Eight years later, he reappeared. Oh, where were you? I was held in a prison cell without charge. No communication to the family. This happens. If you spend time in China, you will realize that hundreds of thousands of Christians, as we sit here, are in labor camps for their faith. This is very real, brothers and sisters. And so, as we talk about persecution, um, we, we need to think not only what's going to happen to me, but if I go into jail or I'm taken away, what happens to my family? Are they prepared? Can they survive without me? Do they have the spiritual roots that are deep enough to withstand the storms of life? And so, these are important questions for us to ask. There are certain biblical responses to persecution. I want to go through those now with you. These are responses that we find modeled within the Bible, and uh, they, are, they are biblical. They are given to us by God to provide us um, options for how we deal with persecution. Uh, the general principle of persecution is given us by Jesus in Luke 6. He said, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Perhaps the hardest teaching in the entire Bible is to love your enemies. You can make a case that's perhaps the hardest teaching in the Bible to love your enemies. You can love your family. You can forgive your family. You want to forgive your family, but your enemies those who want to destroy you, those who want to tear your life apart. This is perhaps the hardest teaching of Jesus, but if we are to be his disciples today, we cannot live a lives filled with anger and rage. Maybe the two dominant emotions in America today are fear and rage, and neither of those should characterize God's people. When we see these things happening, we at least lift our heads up high because I know that our redemption draweth nigh. And we are not to have rage against anybody, any political party, anybody on the streets. We are to have love for them. Because what we see in the anger on the streets are souls that have no hope and they are seeking for meaning. And so they pour their lives into this ism or that ideology. And so the, overall, the overarching principle of responding to persecution is to love those who hurt you. Maybe the most, uh, many examples is in the Bible, but think for a moment about the case of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was, by today's standards, a monster. 
In the ancient times, when they conquered nations, it was not a pretty sight. If you ever want to read what ancient conquest was like, A.T. Jones wrote a three-part history. The General Conference kind of sent him off into exile many years ago, and he did a world tour, and they kind of tried to get him out of their hair for a bit. And while on that world tour, he wrote three books, called one was Empires of the Bible. And the first book was on the early Assyrian Empire, which lasted over a thousand years. Then he talked about Dan, uh, the, the statue of Daniel II, and then he talked about Ecclesiastical Empire was his third book. They're brilliant books. I'd encourage you to read them. I think they're pr um, published by Teach Services. But in the first one, he describes that the writings of the Assyrian kings, when they conquered a city, they talked about holocausts. They would burn all the people and make them run around a hole, fill the, oil, the hole with, the soil, with oil, make them run around that hole until they were exhausted and push them in. They'd be burnt alive. This is what happened at Auschwitz. It wasn't new. It happened by the ancient Assyrians. You read the writings of Assurbanipal and Esarhaddon III and so forth, these neo-Assyrian kings who lived in the time of the kings of Judah. They were absolute monsters. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, in many ways, followed in their tradition. When he conquered Nineveh, when he conquered in Carchemish in the north of Syria, when he conquered all the way down to Egypt, those conquests were not pretty. And yet, how was Nebuchadnezzar brought to conversion? In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheist. That means he believes in many gods, and he comes across suffering Hebrew boys. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't curse him. They don't hate him. They don't, bring up, they don't pray for God to bring leprosy upon this man. They don't pray for scurvy to fall upon him. No, they serve him in his court. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is a, a polytheist. In chapter 2, Daniel answers the king's question about what the dream was, and by the end of Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has moved, as you see in his prayer, from being a polytheist to a henotheist, which means he believes there are many gods, but he recognizes the God of Israel as supreme above all other gods. Daniel chapter 3, he sees the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. Once again, he's confirmed the God of Israel is supreme above all the other gods. And finally, Daniel 4, his, his, the dream about the tree, and Daniel speaks to him, and, and Daniel doesn't say to the king, O king, he said, this, this dream is that God is going to chop you down, and good riddance, and you deserve it, because I've spent my life as a slave in your court. He doesn't say that. He appeals to the king to show mercy to the oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar does not listen. He has his seven years of madness. At the end of that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the text says, I lifted my eyes to the heavens and my reason returned to me. And by the end of that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is a monotheist. He has gone from polytheism to henotheism to monotheism in four chapters. And at each stage of that journey, it was the oppressed who were gracious to him who helped him along that spiritual journey, that spiritual path. And so just seeing the example of Nebuchadnezzar, a great example that loving your enemies, they may not be converted today, but so sooner or later, it, it works upon their hearts. We see that in the example of Paul. As he was persecuting people, it was, the Holy Spirit was pricking his heart. But there are some other biblical responses to persecution. Uh, one of them here is um, to flee. Uh, we think, well, I'm not going to leave my home, I'm not going to leave my job, I'm not going to leave my loved ones. But the reality that is in the world today, there are hundreds of millions of displaced people for various reasons. And many of them are displaced for no fault of their own. And we find in the Bible that an angel commanded Joseph and Mary to flee to Egypt to protect the child uh, um, Christ from the, 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 uh, the anger of Herod. We also see that it's biblical to hide. Rahab hid the two spies. 
Many modern-day Christians are forced to hide in times of persecution. Many years ago, back in about 96, 97, I was in Tajikistan. There was a civil war, the communist government against jihadis from Afghanistan. One of those jihadi leaders decided that he was going to up his political profile in the country, and the best way to do that was to kill a Westerner. At the time, there were about maybe 100 Westerners in that country. Nobody wanted to go to Tajikistan. It was a pretty vicious, vicious civil war. So these jihadis are coming to the officers of aid agencies, trying to find them to kill them. So what did I do? Did I stay in my office? No, I was a young man. I was 23. I didn't want to die. And so I hid. And an old Adventist man who lived in an old Russian apartment block, a one-room apartment, I think some of you lived in some of you lived in so you know what I'm talking about. This is very small. In fact, it's so small that the to- when you go to the toilet, which is just off the main living room, you open the door, you sit on the toilet, and the, the front of the toilet is flush with the door. We know what that means, don't you? You sit down in the toilet and the door is wide open for everybody to see. In a one-room apartment, there's no privacy. For three months I stayed with that dear old man while they came to my office, the jihadis, a couple of times. Where's the guy who lives, works here? We don't know where he is, and it's true. They didn't know where I was. But for three months, I had to hide out, waiting until one day the government announced that this jihadi had been killed and everybody could come out of hiding again. It is biblical to hide. It is not a shameful thing. Sometimes you have no option. At other times, though, we can remain in the world as the salt and light of the world. If you open your Bibles to the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, most of us have Bibles that have um, paragraph divisions. Most of us, we don't use Bibles, just have solid text. And in Matthew chapter 5, my Bible, it has the Beatitudes here, and then there's a paragraph break, and then it says salt and light. Does your Bible say the same? Is anybody out there can see? Yes, does anybody have the Beatitudes of Matthew 5? And then you come to the end of verse 12, the end of the Beatitudes, and then there's a paragraph break. Does anybody have that? Yes. And what comes after that? After the Beatitudes, what's the first thing Jesus talks about? After The last Beatitude is about blessed are you when people persecute you on my account. Now take out the paragraph break, and the next thing Jesus says is, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. The paragraph break breaks up the stream of, of Jesus' teaching. We lose the emphasis. And the point is this, that if you have a candle, if we, if we light a candle here now, and, and, and it sits here, nobody really sees that light. You know that it's there, but you don't see it because there's so much light around. But when the darkness of persecution descends or midnight comes to this sanctuary and that candle is still shining there, that candle that didn't seem to give out much light at midday, everybody can see it in the room at midnight. And so the teaching of Jesus that you are the light of the earth, light of the world and the salt of the earth, makes sense in the context of persecution. Just bearing the name of Christ in times of persecution is a massive witness. I once baptized some Iranians, and I said to them, why, why do you want to be baptized? Because when you go back to Iran in the next 24 hours or so, you'll face persecution. They said, we know that, but we want to bear the name of Christ. Just bearing the name of Christ will incur the wrath of the government. It'll come down upon us, but we want to bear the name of Christ. We affirm a, a nonviolent response. Disciples of Jesus, we place our pain and our desire of vengeance, which is real at times, in the hands of God, who knows everything and who will one day execute perfect justice. If you're not following the persecution around the world, I invite you to open your eyes to this reality. As an example, Nigeria, on a weekly basis, maybe a couple hundred Christians are burnt and hacked to death by the jihadis coming down from the north. 
It's not politically correct to say it, but it's true. Those Christians are, those villages are raised to the ground by certain tribal groups, and they're they're destroyed because they are Christians. There is a cry to God for, for justice. Sometimes we are called to lay down one's life. This is indeed a legitimate response to persecution, and the God promises a special crown is reserved for those who lay down their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. We are also able, according to the Bible, to exercise our legal rights. The Apostle Paul was willing repeatedly to use his legal rights as a Roman citizen to defend himself. When he was captured by the mob in Jerusalem in Acts 20, and the Roman soldiers rescued him, and they took him inside the praetorium, and they were going to um, scourge him, he said to them, is it lawful to to, to, uh, scourge a Roman citizen without first being condemned? And all the soldiers pulled back from him, because it was illegal to, to imprison a Roman citizen and to tie him up unless he was first condemned. And so it is, it is biblical to use your legal rights to defend yourself. A biblical response to persecution is we should not be surprised. The Apostle Peter explicitly counsels disciples to not be surprised when facing persecution. And when, when we lead disciples to Jesus in, in parts of Asia or Africa, one of the most important lessons we have to teach them is this. If you follow Jesus, you will face persecution. It is not a theoretical possibility. This is a reality in many parts of the world today. So we should not be surprised as American Adventists when persecution comes our way. Rather, we are commanded in Scripture to rejoice. We are commanded to rejoice in the good times and in the bad times. And this not kind of ha-ha-ha happiness is the deep assurance that in the midst of your pain, Jesus is with you. He walked with the Hebrews through the fiery furnace before they were delivered from the fiery furnace. We are to pray with thankfulness. As the Apostle Paul commands us in the letter of Philippians written from prison in Rome, we are to pray in all situations, and this includes praying for our fellow sufferers and also for our persecutors. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says that the, the Solomon says, I saw there was much suffering in the world, he said in the first couple of verses. He said, those who are facing oppression have nobody to comfort them, and we say amen, true. And then Solomon says, and those who, are, those who are oppressing others, they have no one to, to comfort them as well. That God sees both sides of the coin. And often those who oppress are driven by fear of what the oppressed would do to them were the circumstances to be reversed. Just look at the Arab-Israeli conflict. Okay, the Israelis are hard on the Palestinians on the West Bank, but they know that if the Palestinians had the upper, had the upper hand, um, there's a thirst to slit the throats of every Jew in, in Israel today. So, a lot of this is driven by fear. People are afraid. We are to refuse to be ashamed. It is a privilege to bear the name of Christ. And when you bear the name of Christ, your witness goes a long way. Uh, and in a country many years ago, the country of Azerbaijan, I used to visit the prime minister every month. We'd pray together. He was a communist. And I got access to him because I was one of three Christians in that republic at the time. Three Christians. And um, he wanted to know, uh, what is a Christian? Because I've spent my life imprisoning them. Now I get a chance to meet one face to face. And so we we should not be ashamed of being Christians. And we should not be ashamed of of following Jesus in his sufferings and never forgetting that we are being persecuted not because of who we are, but because this world has rejected Jesus Christ by and large. We trust in God's abiding presence. Nothing indeed can separate us from the love of God. And God will never allow persecution to become unbearable on a personal level. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. 
there. And so what do we, these are biblical responses to persecution, and uh, they are, um, they're, all, they're all found in the Scriptures. How do we respond as Adventists? So how have we responded historically? Well, in the COVID-19 lockdown, we've all responded in different ways. Would you agree? Some people wear masks at church, some people don't. I know some people haven't left their homes since March. Their food is delivered to them, everything they buy is delivered to them. They are terrified of leaving their homes, and some of them, that their immune systems are compromised, they have good reason to be afraid. Other people say, ah, the whole thing is a fake or it's a political conspiracy, and you have the whole spectrum of views within the Adventist church. It's a reality that we have not responded to this persecution with any sense of unity. Historically, Adventists have never responded to persecution with unity. In World War I, the Kaiser wanted to conscript the young men of Germany, and the Adventist church split down the middle over the question of, should our young men serve in the Kaiser Wilhelm's armies? And out of that split, we have the reformed Adventist church today, and that split is still present. They have their own general conference. They show their own Sabbath school lessons. If you pick up one of their Sabbath school quarterlies, and read it through, you think, oh, this is this quarter's Sabbath school quarter, and so you look at who's publishing it and think, oh, no, this is the Reformed Adventist Church. Where did they come from? We split in Germany in 1916-17, and that church has never recovered. All the way through communism, Adventists split. The question was, do you send your children to school on the Sabbath? The official Adventists sent their kids to school on the Sabbath. Their kids completed their education. The Adventists who wouldn't send their kids to school on Sabbath became the underground Adventists all across parts of the Soviet Union, and their children could not complete their education. When communism collapsed, which side of the church provided leaders for the Adventist church? The official church, because their kids finished their educations. And that bitterness is still there in some parts of the former Soviet Union. Adventists do not respond with unity to persecution. And I want to suggest to you today that in the end-time persecution we will probably fracture along multiple lines as well, just as we have all responded differently to the COVID-19 um, pandemic that we are still enduring today. Some are going to excuse and even justify the persecution of the troublers of Israel. Others are going to accommodate to the persecution. Other Adventists will reject it and hunker down and simply wait for the second coming. Nothing in our history indicates that we will have a unified response to persecution. If you don't believe me, you don't know your Adventist history. COVID-19, brothers and sisters, is a wake-up call. There is much for us to be thinking about on this Sabbath day. Are we uniting in prayer? Are we putting down roots in the Word of God? Do we know our Scriptures? Are we treasuring the Scriptures in our hearts for one day when we no longer physically have a copy of the Bible in front of us? Are we sowing the seed of the Word of God while we have the freedom to do so and while our liberties last? Are we building kingdoms and empires on earth or are we serving the kingdom of God? Are we laying up treasures on earth? Or are we laying up treasures in heaven above? Is anything in this earth overriding our fidelity to our heavenly Father? And what may be more importantly, is our message clear to our dying world? If we are living in a world that is increasingly rejecting the moral foundations of Scripture. As Adventists, we traditionally champion the separation of church and state. But what is happening in America is much more fundamental. We are seeing the separation of Jesus Christ from America. It's a much more fundamental challenge we're now facing in America. It's not, we're not talking question of separation of church and state. It's God from America. As increasingly our secular elites are imposing a secular utopia upon us. And is our message clear? In a nation that is increasingly rejecting the moral foundation of Scripture... 
I want to challenge us today to recommit to, to, to proclaiming a certain message with, with a loud and a clear voice. There is no other foundation. Let's go back here. There's no other foundation for the body of Christ than Christ alone. There is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to God than through Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator between God and humanity than Jesus Christ. There is no other being worthy of our worship than our Creator God and our Heavenly Father. There is no other day that's going to replace the Sabbath as a day of worship. There is no other hope than the blessed hope. There is no other name by which humanity may be saved. Is this what people know about us? If people were to look at our Facebook feeds, would they hear a message of hope? Or would they hear a lot of you know, the, the nonsense that goes on on Facebook these days? You know, I, I see Adventist social media, and I don't want anybody who's thinking about becoming an Adventist to read some of those message boards, frankly speaking. They're brutal. They're absolutely savage. What message are we giving to the world? Are we giving a message that Jesus is coming again, and his kingdom is a kingdom of justice and righteousness, and that his kingdom is based on the principle of sacrificial love, and we are called to love each other and model the principles of those kingdoms today? Or do they see that we are as divided as the world around us? I want to challenge us today. The Judeo-Christian foundations of America are fast eroding. The secular elites are seeking to impose a brave new secular utopia. And we are seeing, as inevitable results, social and political and moral chaos within our nation. I've only been in America for 13 years, and I've seen America change a lot in those 13 years. Those of you who've been here longer than me, you can say that America is very different to the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. We're almost at the edge of a precipice as a nation. In Stalin's prison camps, when you entered a camp, the guards would often allow you one personal item. One personal item. It could be a pencil, it could be a comb, something personal, a picture of your wife maybe. Now why did they do that? Because they knew that if you were going to be a prisoner for 10 years in that camp, they could guarantee your full compliance through the threat of taking that one personal possession from you. That's all it took to buy human compliance. A pencil, a comb, a picture of your wife. The human heart can be captured by one measly thing. Let's ask ourselves today, are our hearts captivated by the ways of this world? Is there something in our hearts today that holds us away from the kingdom of God? Is there something in my life today that actually comes between me and Jesus Christ and I'll give up anything except that one thing? There's a prayer I want to put up on the board here, but my PowerPoint's gone. It's this. Dear Father, I confess today that false gods have infiltrated my heart. My heart, like Lot's wife, is captive to this world. Please, Heavenly Father, today during these Sabbath hours, remove those false gods from me today. Take away their hold on my heart. And may my whole being be captive to you and to your word alone. Amen. May that be our experience today. Jesus is coming again. He will have a people ready and waiting for him. And when he comes, there is a promise of eternal life. It's not worth a comb or a picture or a pencil. Let us commit our whole lives to Jesus Christ today. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.